Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis by mail at Adam Graham, P.O. Box 15913-159-13, Boise, Idaho, 83715, and you can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters, for as little as $2 per month, just go over to patreon.greatdetectives.net. Well, now it's time for this week's episode of The Silent Men. The original air date on this one is December the 9th, uh, 1951, and the title is Pirates, 20th Century Brand. Now, it's The Silent Men on NBC. The Silent Men, starring Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. The National Broadcasting Company proudly presents The Silent Men, Transcribe stories of the undercover operations of the special agents of every branch of our federal government and their relentless fight against crime. And now here is Douglas Fairbanks. It has been more than a century since piracy was a serious threat to the commerce of the world. The names of Jean Lafitte and Henry Morgan have become things of the dim, fictional past. But to law enforcement agencies of responsible world governments, the threat of international banditry has been ever-present and a constant vigil has been kept even in the farthermost parts of the world to keep this menace from again springing to life. In tonight's story, this was the problem that concerned Special Agent Mel Gerard, one of our government's silent men. And it is his identity that I assume in tonight's file case entitled Pirates, 20th Century Brand. As Special Agent Mel Gerard, I've been working with the CIA, our counterintelligence agency that handles civilian cases where they overlap the military. This had been a loan-out assignment from my regular job, and when I wound up my present case, I figured I was through. Now, here I was, sitting in the divisional assistant's office again, halfway through another briefing. Yes, you heard right, Mel. Pirates. This trip, you're going out after a couple of pirates. Captain Kidd, Long John Silver, or did you have some other names in mind? I think you may find these <laughs> names to be Chinese. At least the piracy happened over the China Sea. Say, you're on the level about this. You mean pirates literally, not just figuratively. That's the word for it. Armed robbery or seizure on a vessel or craft. And what's this about over the China Sea? An aircraft. Military? No, commercial aircraft. Flying from Hong Kong to Tokyo with a shipment of gold bullion aboard. And they hijacked it? That's right. The pirates evidently wow. boarded the plane as passengers in Hong Kong. Hmm. About an hour out, they stuck up the crew and took over. The radio operator was able to get out an SOS, but that's the last they ever heard of the plane or the gold. 
Well, shades of the Spanish main, eh? The only case <laughs> of air piracy in commercial aviation history, to my knowledge. But I, I, I still don't see where we come in, Chief. Hong Kong is British territory. It's the gold that concerns us, Mel. It was Japanese gold, impounded after the war in Hong Kong, and being returned to a Japanese bank. Under the Alien Property Authority, we're still technically responsible until it is formally delivered to the Japanese owners. Oh, um, I have a young Japanese girl waiting in the outer office. Oh? Melaine, uh, please send in Miss Okura. Yes, thanks. She went to school in this country. After the war, we brought her back to handle Japanese-American translations on official documents. Comes from quite a fine family. And, uh, uh, may I come in? Uh, come uh, right in, Miss Okura. Thank you. This is Mr. Gerard, Miss Okura. One of our special agents. How do you do? Hello. Oh, please sit down. No, thank you. Miss Okura's father is one of the finance officials in Tokyo, Mel, working with our civil property custodian there. She's been in correspondence with him on the gold matter. He is so terribly broken, Mr. Gerard, as though he himself were responsible. I'm afraid to think what might happen if the gold is not recovered. But why should he take this so personally, Miss Okura? After all, the gold was pirated almost 2,000 miles from Tokyo. You would have to know him to understand. It is a matter of honor. His office made the final arrangements for the gold shipment, Mel. Oh, I see. He is of the old Japan, Mr. Gerard. Without honor, he... He would not continue to live. <laughs> well, it's... Um, it's a matter of honor with us, too, Miss Okura. <laughs> As the chief explained just now, the United States government is still technically responsible. The Japanese people won't have to suffer this loss. I'm sorry. It is very difficult for me to explain. I think what she means is that her father feels he's lost face with us. He was so proud of the way our country has been repeating under the occupation. I... Please excuse me for my lack of control, but I... Of course, of course. Well, Chief, uh, what's been done so far? The CID office in the Tokyo area has given it a pretty thorough investigation. Of course, the British have covered it from the Hong Kong end. No luck? Not a clue. It's quite a professional operation. Then we start all over again from scratch, eh? Not quite. Miss Okura has an idea. That's why I wanted you to meet her. Perhaps you'd better tell it, Miss Okura. Mako. Huh? At the island of Macau off the South China coast? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Not far from Hong Kong, is it? Only 35 miles by air. Mm. And it is the gold smuggling center for the entire Orient. Belongs to Portugal, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah. And if you'll recall, Portugal never signed the Bretton Woods Monetary Agreement. Which means that there's no ceiling on the price of gold in Macau. They can buy it from all over the world, $35 an ounce, and then resell it in China on the black market for as high as 50 and 60 mm, Quite an inducement to smuggling, I'd say. Or piracy. The island of Macau is the center, Mr. Gerard. And somehow I'm sure that if you went there, somehow I knew you would find the missing gold. Sounds like the proverbial needle in the haystack to me. Oh, please, gentlemen, if I could only tell my father that the matter is not yet closed that there is still a chance for recovery, that he does not need... Miss Okura, you may cable your father that the matter is far from closed, and that Mr. Gerard will pay his respects to your father in Tokyo as soon as the necessary arrangements can be made. The 
necessary arrangements consisted of an AG card from the adjutant general's office and every kind of immunization shot you can imagine. Smallpox, cholera, typhus, typhoid, tetanus. <laughs> Ouch. I flew by commercial air to San Francisco, where arrangements had been made for me to cross the Pacific with a military air transport service. From Travis Field, we rode a plush job to Hickam Field at Honolulu, then changed to bucket seats in a C-54 for the longer hop to Japan. After setting down briefly at Midway and Guam for service stops, we finally made Haneda Air Base at Tokyo, where a polite little Japanese took me through the customs routine. Must sorry to inconvenience yourself. Not at all. It's, it's your job. Must search luggage as matter of routine. Oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, not carry a counterband. No, no. Uh, no opium. <laughs> Hardly. Uh, jewelry, uh, any kind. Never touch the stuff. Medical properties. Only what they shot into my arm. Mel! <laughs> Chuck Daly! Hi! Oh, Penicillin, uh, uh, <laughs> No, sorry. You old seahorse. <laughs> have you been, Chuck? Oh, who knows out here? <laughs> also, uh, all in order. Oh, yes, yes, thanks. Uh, most sorry to inconvenience you, sir. No, not at all. My compliments on your thoroughness. <laughs> sayonara. Yeah, yeah, sayonara. Yeah, how about that? Ah, oh, the man with all the words, that's me. And in Japanese, very impressive. What'd you tell him? Sayonara, secret password. <laughs> also means goodbye. Well, I can see I'm not going to need an interpreter with you along. Here, let me take one of those bags. Yeah. <sighs> well, where to from here? I got a staff car outside. You know, it's uh, about 12 miles into town. Ah, here we are. Good. Just... Throw the gear in back. Okay. That's it. That'll give us more room up in front. This your own private buggy? Well, no, just part of the carpool. Oh. We order one whenever we need to. All the comforts of home. Eh? Yeah. Well, what do you know about this case? Pretty cold from here. This was supposed to be just a routine shipment of gold bullion from Hong Kong to Tokyo. You sound as though it happened every day. Well, as a matter of fact, it does. There's gold bullion being shipped by air from banks or one government to another all the time. But with adequate precautions taken, huh? Naturally. What was the security on this deal? Complete secrecy of operation, heavily armed guards at all transfer points, and an armed guard riding with the cargo. And still they got away with it. Uh, and the plane, and the passengers, and the crew. You think they're still alive? I doubt it. Life is pretty cheap down where this happened. You've got to understand what gold means out here in the Orient. Even down at the coolie level, they'll pay black market prices for a little stick of gold they can sew into their clothing, carry with them to their graves. Huh. It's the only sense of security they've got, I guess. Strange. Say, how come you're starting in Japan, Mel? I heard you were heading for Macau. I met a Japanese girl in Washington named Okura. Got a million of them out here by the same name, Chum. Well, her father's in the government finance. Oh, that Okura. Yeah, yeah. Didn't even know he had a daughter. What do you know about the old man, Chuck? Uh, no lead there, if that's what you're thinking. He's as solid as the New York Yankees. I promised his daughter I'd look him up. Sure. He's got an office over in the Bank of Japan building. I interviewed him there when the case broke. Went over all the correspondence on the deal with him. His daughter's worried about how he's taking this. She's, um... She's afraid he might do something. Well... Yeah, that's a possibility. To the old school Japanese, the only answer to personal disgrace is Harikiri. I'd better see him. We can walk over after we check in at headquarters. Give you a chance to see the town.
Tokyo, strange, bustling metropolis of the empire of the rising sun. The city itself is laid out like a giant wheel with the emperor's palace in the center and the avenues running out like spokes neatly intersected by circles of streets. Fascinating contrast of an ancient culture and modern industrialization. Even in the sounds, a wild cacophony of horns and motors and the clanging streetcar bells, interspersed with the clop of horses' hooves or the creaky rumble of an ox-drawn cart. On our way from the Teyukako building to the Bank of Japan, we passed through the Ginza, famous Broadway of Tokyo. Street jammed with screaming traffic. Sidewalks lined with shops and curb stands with vendors hawking their wares. And oddest sight of all, Japanese girl barkers drumming up business in front of theaters by playing blaring phonograph records louder and louder over the already deafening bedlam of sound. Here at last the East had met the West and something new had been added. After leaving a Ginza, Chuck Daly's directions took me across town to the large building that houses the vaults of the Bank of Japan and the office of Mr. Okura. Contrary to what I had expected, his secretary was most attractive young blonde who spoke perfect English. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Mr. Gerard. Mr. Daly telephoned for an appointment for me. Oh, yes. Mr. Okura is expecting you. He is downstairs in the vault. I shall take you to him. Thank you. Here, uh, let me. Thank you. We can walk down. Oh, fine. Oh, um, are you employed by the occupation? No, I work for Mr. Okura. The bank, that is. Oh, I see. Well, I, uh... You thought I'd be Japanese? Uh, well, yes, yes. The, the language, because of your job, I mean. I speak Japanese. Learn it in school? No, I lived in Manchuria when the Japanese were there. That's where I was born. But I lived in Hong Kong. Oh, well, then what does that make you, British? I'm Russian. I hope you don't think I'm rude with all these questions. No, I'm used to it. All the Americans ask me the same thing. I am white Russian. Of course. Pretty stupid of me. That brooch you're wearing, that's the old Russian double eagle, isn't it? Yes, it was my family's. Mm. Uh, He's in here. This is Mr. Gerard, Mr. Okura. Good morning, sir. I am happy to greet your honorable person. I have a message from your daughter in the United States, Mr. Okura. She sends you her love. Thank you. She has written that you are coming. Uh, Excuse me. If you have no further need for me, Mr. Okura, I'll go. Dozo, please do. Goodbye, Mr. Gerard. Uh, Goodbye, and, and, and thank you very much. You are most kind to concern yourself with our affairs, Mr. Gerard. The United States government is officially concerned, Mr. Okura. I ask my secretary to bring you here to the vaults for a reason. Here is the wealth of Japan, Mr. Gerard. The jewels and gold that stand behind our national economy. This is the treasure on which the new Japan must build herself into a prosperous nation in a peaceful world. Well, that's quite a sight, Mr. Okura. Yeah. The gold that was stolen was similar to these bars pirate here. May I examine one? 
Certainly. Hmm. They're heavier than they look, aren't they? Each is of the value of 22,000 American dollars. And there were a hundred of these bars in the shipment? Yes, one hundred. Nearly one billion yen. Oh. This um, stamp here in the gold. That is the seal of the Bank of Japan. Would that have been on the bars that were stolen? Oh, yes. The bars were originally placed on deposit in Hong Kong banks for trade credit. After the war, they were impounded by the British government. Why was that, Mr. Okura? Until the origin and right for ownership could be established. I see, I see. And now they're being returned here to these vaults. Yes, that is correct. Oh, by the way, do you have any idea at all that may throw further light on the matter? No, none at all, Mr. Gerard. My office handled all details in greatest privacy. Only few people know of the arrangements and all are very much to be trusted. I see. Well, I appreciate your help, sir. I... Please give my thanks to your secretary. She was very pleasant. She is most efficient. You have some plan, Mr. Girard? I'm going on to Hong Kong tonight. See what I can learn there. We can't give up, Mr. Okura. Uh, my deepest appreciation. That night, Chuck Daly and I boarded a passenger plane, one of Claire Chennault's new cats. By next afternoon, we were flying low over the South China Sea, approaching the huge island city of Hong Kong. Even from the air, we could sense a quality of mystery and danger. See that? Over there to your right, Mel? On the mainland? Yeah. Well, that's Kowloon. Then just beyond is communist China. What's that little island down there to the left there? That's it, chum. Macau. Kind of pretty from here. Yeah, it's a gambler's paradise. A combination of Monte Carlo and the old Barbary Coast. It's off limits to any of our service personnel. How do they like that? They don't. Look at those sailboats down there, Chuck. They look a thousand years old. Yeah, right out of the past. Chinese fishing junks, aren't they? Smuggling junks is more like it. They operate all up and down these waters. The golden link to China, they call them. Old patchwork sails, solid teakwood decks stretching out clear to the horizon. Right out of the travel folder. Yeah, Uh uh-oh. We're coming in. Better fasten your seatbelt. Immediately after landing, we took a cab to downtown Hong Kong and the British liaison office that had originally handled the shipment of the missing gold. The attaché in charge was a Mr. Richard Quaite. Uh, Very happy to meet you, gentlemen. Uh, This is my assistant, Mr. Toby. Hello. How do you do? Uh, Mr. Toby was in immediate charge of the arrangements on this transfer. Uh, Perhaps if you have any questions... I'm I'm afraid I I can't tell you anything more than I explained in my report. It was just one of those terribly unfortunate things. Complete mystery. Yes. Mr. Daly showed me your report. It was very complete. Thank you. And, um, Mr. Quate, you realize there's no criticism intended by our presence here. You know that. The... We know that officially you've done everything you could. Oh, well, you are most welcome here. Uh, We'd like nothing better than to get to the bottom of it. I was opposed to this air shipment from the beginning. You were? Yes, Mr. Quaite had suggested the transfer be made by military transport, but of course, that would have taken much longer. The Japanese insisted that time was of the greatest importance. Who in Japan was that? Uh, Mr. Okura is the official with whom I corresponded. And he requested that the gold be shipped by air. That's right. His letter said that since the gold was privately owned by Japanese banks and the commercial air express would be so much faster, 
that we ship it by air. I see. And what's your feeling now, Mr. Quaid? Do you think there's any chance of our getting any of it back? You're unfortunately not a chance. No, it's only 40 miles from here to communist China. If it ended up in there, I'm afraid it's gone. We'd considered Macau as a possibility. Oh, yes, naturally, so would we. But uh, where does one begin to look there? Over $30 million worth of gold a month pouring into Macau from all over the world. Every bank, practically every shop runs some sort of gold exchange. That's the first place we thought of, Mr. Gerard. Well, with your permission, gentlemen, we'd still think that we'd like to take a look. Oh, certainly. It's a gambling resort, you know. Yes. Uh, Perhaps with uh, (laughs) beginner's luck. (laughs) Who knows? Three hours later, Chuck Daly and I were standing on one of those solid teakwood decks that it so beautifully described on the trip down. We were aboard the Macau ferry, pulling into the fabulous port of Sydney. And up until 1945, you could buy opium right over the counter in any shop in town. Perfectly legal, mind you. Yeah, yeah. Say. Hey, what's the matter? Don't you like my travelogue? I'm sorry, Chuck. I wasn't listening. <laughs> You're telling me. I've been thinking about Mr. Quaite's assistant. Toby? Yeah. What about him? Well, something about his speech puzzled me. Didn't sound quite right. I mean, he didn't sound like he was really British. Well, he's not. He's white Russian. Ah, that's it. The same overly correct speech pattern she had. Who had? Okura's assistant in Tokyo. She was white Russian, too. She told me so. Well, that solves your mystery, then. White Russians sound very much like uh, white Russians, especially when they're brought up in the Orient. Kind of elementary, my dear Watson. No, seriously, Chuck, isn't it? Quite a coincidence, both of them. No, not out here it isn't. You run into them all over. See, when the commies moved into Manchuria, the old white Russians had to start moving again. Shanghai, Hong Kong, Manila, Singapore, wherever they could make a living. Both of them in the same type of government service. Oh, believe me, Mel, the only coincidence is that these jokers are all pretty good linguists. They're a cinch to land that kind of job. Sorry to blow up your little theory. Well, perhaps you're right. We were there. The ferry bumped and groaned into its berth. Heavy chains lowered the big ramp and the passengers started pushing off. They were mostly Chinese with only a handful of Europeans. We followed the stream of passengers down the long dock and out through the ferry building to the street. Our plan was to head straight to the Macau police headquarters where we could request official aid for our investigation. But only a block from the waterfront, I stopped suddenly. What's the matter? Quick, Chuck, into this doorway, out of sight. What is it? The man who just came out of that building. Where? On the corner. What about him? Toby. The one we just left in Hong Kong. I recognize him. But that's impossible. I tell you, it's him. He wasn't on the ferry with us. No, he must have flown over. He kind of neglected to take us into his confidence. Back, here he comes. Yeah. Yeah, close. Well? Was him all right? Let's go. It was tough tailing him. Two Americans in a city full of Chinese. We stayed as far back as we dared without losing Toby altogether. Then, just at the edge of the brightly lit section of the city, he turned quickly and disappeared into a shop. When we got closer, we could see that it was a bicycle shop. In a moment, he came out. He's rented himself a bike. 
Looks like he's going for a ride. Let's hope it's a one-way street. Yeah, there he goes. On out of town. Come on. We had to take the chance. An open dash for the bike shop. Chuck tossed some American money at the confused shop owner as we each grabbed a bike. He picked up the money and grinned and waved his arm. By now, we had lost sight of Toby. The darkness had swallowed him up. But there had been no turnoff on the road, so we pedaled straight ahead. There he is. Straight ahead. Slow down. Yeah. He's going off the road. Hey, look. That big shed over there. Ditch the bikes. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, it looks like a bar. Or an airplane hangout. Holy smokes. You think it might? That field is long enough to land a big one. He's gone around the other side. Let's run for it. All right. Look, Mel. It's it. A commercial airliner. Can you see the markings? Yes, it's it. It's the one. Come on. We've got to get back to Macau. Quick. Our first stop was police headquarters. While Daly and a truckload of local constables drove back to where we'd seen the plane, I got Hong Kong by radio phone and talked with the British attaché, Mr. Quaite. You say you're calling from Macau, Mr. Gerard? That's right. Any luck? Yes, I think so, Mr. Quaite. Splendid. Have you any idea where Mr. Toby might be reached? Oh, why, uh, at his home, I imagine. He left the office just after you did. Are you sure? Well, of course, I, I couldn't be sure, but... You didn't send him over here to look after us by any chance? Oh, most certainly not, no. What are you getting at? He's here, nonetheless. Toby? In Macau? He flew over here ahead of us. Well, I, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid he's in on this business, Mr. Quaite. We've found the missing plane. The hell on Macau? Toby led us straight to it, and I've got a hunch he'll lead us to the goal. Well, I'll be there by plane in half an hour. Thank you, Mr. Quaite. The police here will know where I am. In the field where Daly had led them, the police found the plane all right and arrested two men guarding it. But Toby had disappeared. As soon as Mr. Quaite arrived from Hong Kong, we went straight to the downtown building where I'd first seen Toby that evening. And now we were all part of the strangest stakeout I'd ever been connected with. Officials of the Portuguese government, Macau police, British Hong Kong authorities, and two United States special agents, all huddled in a dimly lit alley behind the building peering into a small, barred cellar window. What is this place, Mr. Quaid? It's a kind of nightclub upstairs, but according to the police, there's a gold syndicate operating in the cellar here. The real thing? Yeah. It operates secretly, but not illegally, so... Fantastic. Like something out of another world. That open furnace and those Chinese men stripped to the waist. Yes, they're melting down bar gold and recasting it in smaller sticks for easier sale. And that man crouched on the floor with those primitive Chinese hand scales. <laughs> they're as accurate as the modern kind. Shh, there's some activity down there. They're wheeling in a new tray of bars. It's Toby. Trying to destroy the evidence. Of course, scoundrel. Once the bars are melted down, there's no way of identifying them. Quickly, break in. <laughs> Attacking from both front and rear, the police smashed in the barred doors and swarmed down the cellar steps. At the bottom was complete confusion. One of the policemen and two of the Chinese had been shot. 
white-hot furnace melting, the gold made it as hot as the boiler room of a ship. And for an instant, I thought of another place. The men had thrown down their guns and were babbling incoherently. Somehow, the tray of gold bars had been overturned and they were spilled half in, half out of the furnace. I ran over and picked one up off the floor. Quiet! Quiet! All of you! It's the gold, Mr. Quaite. The same seal Mr. Okura showed me in Tokyo. My compliments, Mr. Gerard. Mr. Toby? Yes, Mr. Quaite. In the name of the Crown and with permission of the Macau authorities, I arrest you and all others concerned for murder, grand theft, and piracy. This is Douglas Fairbanks again. The smashing of the gold piracy ring in the Far East closes another chapter in the distinguished chronicle of our silent men. The special agents of all branches of our federal government who daily risk their lives to protect the lives of all of us. Next week, we will tell you a story involving a cruel extortion racket practiced on the next of kin of some of our battle casualties in the file case entitled The Bogus G.I. Another venture undertaken for our protection by the Silent Men. The Silent Men is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's case was written by Mr. Lewis and transcribed in Hollywood. Only the names and places were fictional. Featured in tonight's cast were Ben Wright, Lillian Bayef, Bert Holland, Jerry Hausner, Bertram Tanswell, and Herb Butterfield. Your announcer is Don Stanley. Douglas Fairbanks may currently be seen in the motion picture, Mr. Drake's Duck. Listen again next week and every week to other exciting cases involving the law enforcement adventures of the special agents of our federal government. For they are the silent men. The Silent Men came to you from Hollywood's Radio City. Now it's Tin Pan Valley on NBC. Welcome back. I kind of wondered a bit about the whole uh, white Russian thing. Uh, just because I'm used to white being uh, a term, you know, to describe race. And I was like, what's that about? Well, I looked it up, and uh, the term white Russian is a term that goes back to the Russian uh, Revolution in 1917. The Bolsheviks, of course, were the Reds. And opposing them uh, were the uh, white movement. And, of course, after the revolution, many of them went into uh, exile. And based on the way that uh, the episode describes the secretary, it seems likely uh, that she was either not uh, born at the time of the revolution, and so uh, her family uh, were the exiles, or she was just a young child at the time. Both this episode and some of the recent episodes of The Man Called X really are uh, interesting for 
me in taking me to societies where the gold standard uh, was in effect and how big a deal stolen gold was when it was the basis of a country's economy. It's fascinating and it's a little difficult uh, for me to wrap my head around it in some ways just as someone who, you know, in the United States, as long as I've been alive, we've had uh, a fiat currency. So it kind of makes you think about some things that you just take for granted or can't even relate to. Well, I do want to go ahead and thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Barbara, Patreon supporter since December, currently supporting us at the uh, Detective Sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Again, thank you so much for your support. That'll do it for today. Join us back here Monday for Casey Crime Photographer, and we will be back next Saturday with an episode of A Silent Man. In the meantime, send your comments to... Box 13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.